Welcome to Ask the Chief Information Officer on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. Now your host, Jason Miller. Welcome to the show. Today we have a special edition of Ask the CIO. I'm playing excerpts from a panel I moderated at the Advanced Technology Academic Research DevOps Summit. My panel included Sarah Fodden, the Chief of the Verification Program Portfolio at the U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services in the Homeland Security Department, Dustin Lown, a Senior Advisor for Technology and Innovation at the Federal Communications Commission, and Bo Woods, the Deputy Director of the Cyber Statecraft Initiative at the Atlantic Council. First, we hear from Woods about the trends he's seen in the cyber market. We don't necessarily do DevOpsy things, uh, but we certainly talk about them a lot. Uh, and one of the places where we talk about them a lot is in heavily regulated safety critical industries like healthcare and medical devices, right? So it might surprise you to know that um, medical device makers are starting to pick up DevOps practices because they help save lives. And you can get better products out to market faster, lower cost, fewer errors, higher quality, and then once you know that there's a problem, uh, you can go and fix it quicker. So uh, there's one organization I know of um, that they took uh, some testing for validation and verification from a process that was about six months to about 14 days. So uh, if you think about what it means in the, the wake of the recent Petya or not Petya or whatever we're <laughs> going to call this latest thing, they, if you're a, an organization that needs to be able to respond quicker, and the first pass improvement goes from six months, you know, a matter of months to a matter of days, then that next pass improvement can be even faster uh, and allow you to be more agile to help save lives. One obligatory follow-up, when you talk about medical device makers, is it a cyber play or is it a quicker play to get more capabilities out to the market? Is it a little bit of both? It depends on who you're selling to in the organization, <laughs> right? So uh, the, the particular organization I'm thinking of it was somebody who came in as uh, basically um, uh, an intern or a co-op student, learned the organization from multiple different perspectives and said, hey, we can do better. And then he joined as a hire and started going around and talking to the developers about the better development, lower code errors, higher development speed, talked to the chief compliance officer about the regulations that they had to fit and how those were changing and then how they needed to, to change with them. Uh, talk to the um, nascent product security team about how this can help reduce errors and respond quicker to security issues. Talk to the CEO and others about um, the business benefits, the financial cost implications of being able to be more agile. So it was all things to all people. Because I know it's, uh, you hear that a lot about the medical device industry, how they're the, if they're a little slower, if you will, to come around, especially around cyber, there's a lot of concerns with IoT. So maybe it's a the, the worm is starting to turn or, or whatever phrase we want to use. <laughs> Let's hope so. Sarah, I had the pleasure of talking, I think, to a colleague of yours recently. You guys had won the Igniting Innovation Award from ACT-IAC. Verification program is a fascinating program. Tell us about it. My name is Sarah Fodden, and I'm over at the United States Citizenship and Immigration Services. I will just say that our transition to Agile began about six years ago, and we trans fully transitioned in about, I would say, years maybe so we don't even really talk about agile much anymore it's not really like a hot topic for us <laughs> <laughs> um, but my team specifically uh, we've been doing some really cool things I took over the program a little over two years ago and um, we got our approval to go to become a, a level one modernization program maybe about seven months after I took over 
and we went live in AWS with our first piece of the application three months later in production. And uh, we've been, we're using what's called a strangler approach, so we're breaking off little pieces of the app and rebuilding it in the cloud. And then we moved the rest of the application, the legacy pieces, to Amazon as well. A few months ago, we achieved continuous deployment, so we now deploy numerous times a day to production. Anytime there's a bug that we find out about, our users are very close-knit into our operations, and so they have like an instant reach back. And um, we also have an environment called Preview where users can opt in to use that to see new features before they go live to everybody else. And they can choose to be like live testers of that in production. Um, and so they'll give us the feedback and then we fix the bug like immediately. As in within minutes, I mean sometimes it might take a couple days depending on how much development work it takes and prioritizing it on the backlog. But um, that's where we're at. We're, everything's automated, our entire in infrastructure, we're completely DevOps. Um, so nobody touches production ever. The only people that really have accounts are security, like one guy in security. <laughs> and um, we're using Docker as well, container technology. So our pipeline is really fast, like 12 minutes fast. And um, we have a completely microservices approach as well. So each microservice has its own pipeline, actually. And that's about it. I mean, right. There's a lot there. There's a lot there, yeah. All right, I'm so very short to the point. <laughs> that's good. It's good. So just in case if people don't understand, uh, explain if you can just briefly what the strangler approach is. Yeah. Uh, do we know so, what that is, or do we want an explanation? Let's have an explanation. People okay. weren't. Some people right. nodded. Or so we started with a very complicated legacy application that was built over a period of about 15 years and where all of the application code is actually within the database itself. And so it's an extremely, I mean, literally we did a reverse engineering of it. We like wrote some Python scripts and pulled out the, the data and then we visualized it with a same key to see like what it actually looked like within the database. And it was like spaghetti code you know, all of these different packages connecting to different, you know, tables within the database. It's just, it's I mean, 15 years of developing within the database. Our application code for the legacy app is literally tiny. It's, there is no, I mean, I don't even know why they had the application. Like, <laughs> you know? And so ripping apart something of this complexity is very complicated. And so we decided to use a strangler approach where we take small pieces of it, but you know, a full, feature or functionality, and we rip that off, rebuild it, modernize it completely in the cloud, it still connects back to the legacy application where necessary, we refactor on the legacy side slowly, and then one piece at a time, keep ripping out the different pieces. So that's the strangler approach until eventually there's not gonna be much left of that legacy application um, over time. So that's what we've been doing, and we've created like six microservices um, of different pieces of the app. All right, and then the other one I wanted to ask about as well is um, you talk about automation, and I've had great conversations with Mark Schwartz. He'll be here later. He'll talk a little bit, but when you talk about automation, everything is automated. Someone writes the code, yes. and it goes through a series of five, yeah, have, 10, 12, whatever. Yes. This. We have a CI CD pipeline, so all of our testing is automated as well, except for obviously the user testing, which we actually use live users to test that in production in our preview environment, so they're testing it live in production. But yeah, everything else, all the other tests, security, I actually have a whole background in security, many, many years in that field. And we automated all of that stuff. It's a part of our pipeline, so it, um, we actually ran into a funny problem 
where we were done with a microservice and the way that we update our certificates, it's like on a monthly basis. And um, so because we were done with the, the, um, the microservice and we weren't deploying any more code to it, we realized that we had to come up with this workaround for the certificates that expired. <laughs> and so it went down one day and we were like, oh, I guess we need to now automate the fact that we deploy to it all the time, which for security reasons was, you know, another reason is every time we deploy to our pipeline, we also pull down all the latest security patches as well. So every time we deploy, latest patches come and are applied. Um, so that was like another issue, but yeah. And we we ran into yeah. new issues that we never thought we would have <laughs> based on automation. <laughs> And then as soon as the AI and machine learning comes, you won't need users either. So we're either. actually doing that now. It's a separate project where <laughs> next, my next major initiative, while still modernizing verification, is to actually build a back-end person-centric service. So we actually took all of the data, the person records for the agency, which was came from like nine different systems, so it's about 835 million records. And then we resolved the entities. We're at 94% right now, entity resolution. Um, and so we're now gonna build a person-centric service with microservices attached to it where these systems will now redo how they use their person data. And so it's pretty fascinating because never before has this been done at USCIS. We've all, all of our systems are really primarily transaction-based and then within each system, obviously there's a lot of keying in manual processes where people are typing in people's names and things. And so the same person could be re represented in different, numerous different ways across the different systems. And then it takes a lot of manual processes in order to figure out who that person actually is and which records are associated with them for the process that they're, you know, that they're trying to, or the benefit that they're trying to process. And so this will be, I think, quite a, a groundbreaking thing for USCIS. I'm, I'm really excited about it, actually. We have to take a break. You're listening to a special edition of Ask the CIO. I'm playing excerpts from a panel I moderated at the Advanced Technology Academic Research Center's DevOps Summit. My panel included Sarah Fodden, the Chief of the Verification Program Portfolio at the U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services in the Homeland Security Department, Dustin Laun, a Senior Advisor for Technology and Innovation at the Federal Communications Commission, and Bo Woods, the Deputy Director of the Cyber Statecraft Initiative at the Atlantic Council. I'm Jason Miller. You're listening to Ask the CIO on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. Welcome back. You're listening to Ask the CIO on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. I'm your host, Jason Miller. This is a special edition of Ask the CIO. Today, I'm playing excerpts from a panel I moderated at the Advanced Technology Academic Research Center's DevOps Summit. My panel included Sarah Fodden, the Chief of the Verification Program Portfolio at the U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services in the Homeland Security Department, Dustin Laun, a Senior Advisor for Technology and Innovation at the Federal Communications Commission, and Bo Woods, the Deputy Director of the Cyber Statecraft Initiative at the Atlantic Council. In this segment, we hear from FCC's Laun, and then we start taking questions from the audience. I was brought in three years ago. The FCC had 207 legacy systems, all built from scratch, custom code legacy, and you have to start somewhere to try to get to modern. So the initiative was, I think, by 2020, have everything in the cloud and SaaS-based, whatever. So part of understanding that, I come in, I look at the culture, but I was given a project. I was given a legacy application with approximately four to 500,000 end users, which is consumers complaining to the FCC about one of many things. Every carrier in the United States of America uses the system. They didn't tell me that prior to me uh, recommending some things. But anyway, we rebuilt that system on a SaaS-based platform. So we didn't write any code. Picked a product, did this project in 60 days from procurement to launch. Successful. We handed the keys over to the business. IT doesn't even get involved in that project very rarely anymore. So they just kind of run and operate their own environment. That's kind of the vision of how we like to operate. IT doesn't need to be the bottleneck. 
The second philosophy that we have is we, if you're not selling a product, I don't feel you should be writing code because there's plenty of platforms out there that can get you probably 90, 95% of the way there. So we went all in on a, on a platform. We do like what we call like our 80, 15, five models. So 80% on that platform, 15 on SaaS lines of business products that don't work that. 5% right from, right from scratch, if, we, if you will. So you guys know net neutrality? So we, did, we built that system, the, the commenting system that John Oliver loves to have people go to. We ended up <laughs> building that from scratch and that became, it's a little nightmare to, to maintain. So uh, when you're building on top of a platform like we're doing and we're just, we're picking applications and the way I do it, I also don't like to write requirements. I'm like, show me the legacy app, I'll then re rebuild it in front of you and then we can make changes right away. So it's like literally real time happening in front of you, no requirement gathering, it drives the FCC crazy because they're used to their old processes, they don't know how to handle it. Um, we don't do requirements. Because you can, you can do it really fast. And I think by the time you write something down, it's also obsolete over time too, so you mm -hmm. just got a bunch of documentation. So currently right now, we just we kind of did a rationalization of applications that made sense, we're picking them off. Uh, I take special projects, so I'll do things in, in two days that take most people 30 days, and, and then you just keep putting things in production. Oddly enough, with the term DevOps, I feel every day there should be something pushed to production, and when we say production, we've invested in service now, even though it's ITSM, we, we use door custom application module heavily on, on that side of the fence, I mean, it's, it's configuration. So they have a process of moving things through their environments, right? So, but half of what you can do, you could also do in production with no risk. So part of DevOps to me is understanding where your real risk is and stop being a bottleneck to that and only put governance around things that can have high impact. So you kind of have to really know, know what's going on in your organization. You have to know the product, educate yourself, but don't just put a process in place. And I think the bigger challenge that we all face is, I am a contractor, there are contractors. Contractors are bound by risk. So if they're in charge of your DevOps and you're not, you're not taking DevOps on yourself and pushing that down to the contract staff, you're gonna be beholden to how they operate. That's a huge bottleneck and I got an argument with another contract company because they were slowing me down the other day. His exact words are, you're moving too fast. Um, that tells me you're not up to speed in 2017 to where you need to go. So philosophy, don't write any code, buy things. There's plenty of things out there unless you're selling a product. And I also, I own a company and I sell a product, so I behave differently in my other life than I do in my, my consulting, so I do a bunch of microservices stuff, AWS. But, so that's kind of what we're doing. All right, so Dustin, you know, I'm a big John Oliver fan, so I gotta ask the question. So I've been told you guys don't get a heads up when he does stuff around net neutrality. How soon, when you, if you're watching the show, whose phone's ringing ver first? Are you guys calling David Bray, the FCC CIO, without going, or, or John Slardick, or how's it, give me the sense, because, you know. A, there's a group of us that don't sleep really, so Slack. <laughs> and the minute something happens, we're, we're talking to each other, and you know there's, there's gonna be need behind the scenes, and then we start doing the underground communication to see what's up. And one of the challenges in the DevOps with, the, with uh, John Oliver sending a bunch of stuff is you're also bound by contracts. You can't necessarily, if you have, don't have a known cost, scale up your your architecture the way it needs to be in an influx like that because you never, the, the system wasn't meant to take that much hit, so you've only allocated X, so you can't get around some of these rules that allow you to scale the way you need to do. So that's, you need to be a bit more proactive on the front end for all. So, so just to compare, and, and you forgive me if I don't get this right, but let's say when someone like Netflix releases a new TV show, a new series, House of Cards, and they know it's going to be popular, do they scale up? So they go from, usually they do X, now they're going to X plus five. They're going to be smarter and pro they're going to have all that auto already, already known. Yeah. They're, uh, so it's yeah, auto. You have, you have, so like 
my product, I have to, I'm going to support two million end users at the time. Everything is fully, like when you use Lambda microservices, you don't even think about that. That yeah. thing just replicates itself mm -hmm. many, 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 many times over exactly. to handle your load. And there will be capacity hit at some point in time, but, and then it, server things, if you have, you know, you have triggers, uh, number of CPU usage, number of memory going up, scale the, scale the exact server, load balancing, all these kind of fun mm -hmm. things should already be in place prior to that. Already automated. Yeah. Pretty really interesting, so, different perspectives, a little bit of cyber, DevOps, we don't even talk about it anymore. And, and I think the FCC, as you heard, is uh, all in as well in, some, in many different ways. So, questions from the audience. My name is Nick Pesci. I work for Miter Corporation. Uh, one of the questions I have, which is dear to my heart, is you have DevOps. Great. IT understands DevOps. Now you have to deal with the acquisition, governance, policies. How do you deal with that? How do you get them to change? And are they changing? Am I the only one that, I'm the only one that can answer this I question, answer, I guess. I can answer. <laughs> I, no, I mean, I, I'm probably the best person to answer. We're consultants. We're used to answering questions when we have no idea. So. Oh, okay, yeah. So, um, actually, we've been doing some really cool things in the acquisition arena, and I have some really good ideas that I can't talk about yet, but that I'm going to be implementing really? over the next year. You can year. tell us. No, I can't. <laughs> I know you want me to, but I can't. <laughs> but we did this procurement last year, and we've repeated the process, um, which I think you guys like, right? Where I actually put the price in the, the, the proposal, or at least a small range, so that you guys know what, what the price is going to be, save you time on figuring it out. And um, I think it's important that for IT services, and because it's so hard to find the talent that we need, that we um, make sure that we have the right rates in there, and it's not being given to the cheapest one like that's not that's not the model that I want at all. I want the most technically capable vendor to come in and do the work for us. And so, the main thing that that makes us that helps us to make our decision is the tech demos, which is us giving you a technical challenge and you coming there and spending a nine-hour day with us and us getting to watch you implement that technical challenge and actually build something in AWS using all of the technologies listed in the technical landscape of the PWS. We're no longer buying, I mean, there are enough smart engineers and, and you know, I have one of them sitting in the back um, there from USCIS that understand IT and can develop themselves and can engineer themselves and are, you know, DevOps can uh, build things with DevOps themselves that we don't need you to come in and build us some big massive solution that isn't gonna benefit us, and we already know that you're not gonna be able to do that. What we need are teams of highly qualified and capable individuals that know how to, that are technically capable of doing this stuff, and can bring ideas, but you know, the government needs to be the ones architecting the ideas and making sure that it's properly implemented. And I don't think that you would do it any differently at any corporation that you run. You wouldn't just hand somebody you know, $500 million and say, oh, go build this thing for me. You would never do that. So I think the government's getting smarter about doing their acquisitions in a different way so that we are managing the actual product in the end and ensuring that we get what we need and doing it slowly and in iteration so that we can divert if things aren't working out. Our CIO is very liberal in his thought process in, in trying different things. So mm -hmm. buying SaaS-based products, all we heard is we can't do that. It doesn't follow X, Y, and Z. And then we would do it. And people are like, well, how did you do it? And you do it two, three, four times. And we, we also did what we called a bake-off. I used to be in pre-sales way back in the day, and uh, I was, 
we sold to a client and he made me sit there for seven days and rebuild everything we did in a demo and I thought that was great so we kind of did the same approach but I think you first have to get out of the mindset that we can't do it that way because probably 50 people before yeah. you told you can't and so that's just going to be the narrative that everybody tells as you go on but then there's an exception to every rule uh, and then you can right size the exception if you need to over time but you need to break the rules slightly to get to where you need to go. I think it's about the interpretation of the rules. I like that. Not break them, right? Not breaking them. No, I, like, I like to break. Properly I like to break. Justice Department doesn't like that. <laughs> Don't do it. I report on those things. Question. Hi, Jen Hoover, TSA. Uh, how do you implement and it's okay to fail fast and move forward mentality, especially in an organization where the CIO is extremely risk averse? That's She's not talking about TSA. Yeah. <laughs> That's an excellent question. One that I have not had to face since I have Mark Schwartz as the CIO. <laughs> I, I got lucky too. Yeah, so. <laughs> My I mean, guy said go. But well, I can tell you. Can you answer that? Yeah, so I can give a, an answer from, uh, I used to work in a hospital, and obviously hospitals are very risk averse. Uh, but we had this, uh, this problem where our nursing stations kept getting infected with, with malicious software, and then someone, a lot of times me, would have to go up and pull the, the desktop, rebuild it, and, and then put it back into production, which is about a half a day thing. So what we started doing uh, is I went and worked with uh, one of these nursing stations, the one that was hardest hit, and that had the most downtime from these things, and I said, hey, I can fix your problems, but you're gonna have to work with me. It'll introduce some small failures along the way in order to save you days of downtime. And uh, the, the leader of that organization was really, really uh, eager to, to join and sign up. Um, and so uh, through a, very, a variety of processes that were not so much on the development side, but most on operations, we were able to basically make them immune from most of the things that the rest of the hospital was getting hit with. Once the other nursing stations found out, they demanded that we come in and do the same thing for them. So it's partly about I think the lesson that I learned anyways was that it, it's partly about um, how you go in and do small pilots uh, in less consequential areas where uh, risk-averse people can tolerate that kind of risk or don't know about it until it's just fixed. Um, and then the kind of messaging and uh, building demand. You know, I told her, don't tell anybody about this, <laughs> right? We're, we're doing this, it's a pilot, it's an experiment. Um, and then big organizations being big organizations, word spreads when somebody's really happy or when somebody's really not happy. I will take a stab at it in saying that although our CIO was not as risk averse, although he is risk averse to some extent, I started my career in the, like I said, in the security field before I moved over to this. Well, actually, I didn't start it there, but I spent a lot of time there. And um, at USCIS, I was you know, in charge of the security of the organization and all of those processes. And so we actually, before we went to AWS, I did a very well-documented risk assessment of going into GovCloud or Amazon East. And so I would say that the best way to handle that is through documentation and, and understanding, right? Education, like educate the CIO or whoever is the risk-averse person on what the risks actually are. Because a lot of times it's not really that the person is afraid of taking a risk, it's that the, they don't understand the risks and what, you know, what the risk is to them and what it means for them, right? And what the difference is, like not taking the risk, what is the risk in that, as opposed to actually taking the risk and what's the benefits and the, and the, way, and the, you know, the way off of those two things. And I think the other piece of it is, is Dustin, you said start small, find, find a champion, 
I mean, I think you brought that up too. Find somebody who will yeah, take be, that risk and, with you. And yeah. I mean, more along your model, just be confident and go in and give them a project that you want to try and say, if I fail at this, I won't ask you to do it again. But be confident in your success in that, and then they'll go, okay, this per one, I, I trust in this person, because that's another thing too. How do I trust the person can get this done also? So you got to give that confidence. All right, another question. Uh, Melissa Heron-Miter, um, I had a question about how you uh, deal with open source from a security perspective. Are you scanning everything as though it's your own? Are you trusting what's out there to be secure? Or where do you strike that balance? We scan everything <laughs> automatically, like daily. Yeah. Um, and every time it goes into the pipeline, obviously, as well. Yeah. So, I mean, and then we have created our own configuration guides for things that DHS didn't have a configuration guide for on a regular basis. That was like one of the things that I did when I was over in security. You know, we had things that DHS hadn't actually proposed any hardening guides for, and we just did it ourselves. Um, and we're constantly, I mean, we are faced with that challenge, you know, every time we're like touching a new technology, well, how do we secure this? Like, we always bake it in at the beginning. We always bring in the security engineers at the beginning, and then we work together um, to decide how, what approach we're gonna take to securing it, what tools we're gonna try out. And we try different things, what, what's gonna work. And we, we assess tools, some tools, you know, depending on what country they were built in, we don't use. Um, so there is, you know, there are some things that we don't do. Um, but other than that, it's pretty free and open. You don't necessarily know right. what country mm -hmm. has contributed. That's true. Are. But it's open, so you can see all the, everything, right? So, Bo, can you jump in on open source a little bit? <laughs> How much you guys looking at open source? You're, yeah. you're, you're the token uh, cyber guy. Yeah, uh, I mean, there's trade-offs and benefits to being entirely community contributed uh, and being open. You know, Microsoft just accidentally had a bunch of source code released, so I don't know if that makes it open, but uh, but certainly now you have the chance to scan it uh, if you if you so desire to download that and, and do so. There's a, kind of an old adage that I think we're, we're continually now proving to be untrue, that with enough eyeballs, all bugs are shallow, and the fallacy there is that we rarely have enough eyeballs on it um, within the time span we need to have them. Uh, and something like Heartbleed is, you know, the, the point that I usually raise with people who don't get open source, you know, natively. There are advantages to going open source. Uh, I think uh, as long as you don't treat it as pristine and you know, come from on high, then uh, bringing it in and, and doing scanning, doing the same types of things you would normally do uh, can help protect yourself. Also, scanning is one thing. That's like... Yeah the lowest minimal yep. thing that you should be doing. Well, I, th I think yep. the government yeah. has used open source as a marketing tool too, and th there's a lack of education on really yes. understanding what it, what that means, what it is, how do you interact with it, where does it sit, am, am I using it, once I take it, is it my own, am I make it my own, all these, all these kind of dis decisions, but the government's just like build on open source, you hear that all the time, but there, there's a whole educational process around, around that, and it still goes back into writing a custom application with just a little help. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and there can be some benefits to using open source when you find flaws and fix them and, and dump them back into the, um, to the project because then that increases the critical mass uh, and there's more people who come in and start helping and contributing um, and so it can improve the overall quality and pay dividends where 
you know, you're putting one X in and maybe getting two or three X out just from the community involvement. Uh, Brandon Dubay with Tax and Trade Bureau. Um, just a quick question. I just want to get your thoughts around as you reach these higher level, um, higher orders of automation, um, I guess the future of artificial intelligence and machine learning. Yes. Um, what, what are your thoughts around that? How is that going to affect your DevOps strategy? How would that affect DevOps? We need to automate that too. That's all automate too. <laughs> no, just automate it. The, yeah, the, yeah. Ma the machine is going to automate itself. Yes, even better. <laughs> so th this is one of the reasons why my philosophy is the and I think it probably applies to civilian agencies more than non, but if you're, if you're buying platforms, those companies are investing millions and millions of dollars into security, <laughs> artificial intelligence, machine learning. They're doing it for you. So it just be, now all you have to worry about is the business side of everything. So they're taking care of the tech. It's, it's evolving for you. You're trusting, you're picking vendors that are thinking and they're innovative and they're gonna be around. If they're not, you, you, your strategy allows you to pull that out and put another one in that will. Um, but that's why I'm a firm believer in the buy, to let them think about all that, and I, I don't have to spend brain power or dollars on it. So. And I only think you should buy when you have large implementations where other people do it really better, and that everything else you should build. Just so we're clear that we disagree on that. But well, for, <laughs> you, you guys have a different budget than the SEC, too. That's probably true. That's probably true. Yeah. We, we negotiated enterprise deals with every single vendor that we had that were we're building things on, so we didn't have to think about license costs. We only think about labor, and you want the labor to get cheaper over time, which a lot of agencies it's not. You get more contractors writing code on your behalf, that's a lot of money out there, and then the agency's not empowered themselves. Yeah, but if you have difficult, you, if you have you business do, customers DH, that have DHS, specific like, needs that are gonna be constantly changing, so, that doesn't make every, sense for a COTS tool, every, period. Every, every need we have is a form a notification, a if workflow. If it's that and they, simple, they, then yes, I agree. They built 207 of yeah, those. Yeah. If now, it's that simple, I agree. Yeah. The other difference is... But most government stuff is a form no, of something else. No, you're wrong on that. You're <laughs> yeah, very mistaken there. It's you're all, very it's, mistaken it's all, there. That's a very it's all, naive it's all a form. That's a very naive It's all a form. <laughs> so the other Absolutely difference not. is USCIS, though, brings in a lot of contractors, and you're yes. overseeing their efforts yes. to build that custom code. Yes. So it's not like they... SSA and a few others have a host of on-premise government employees who are doing the coding. You guys are still relying on contractors. You're still hopefully getting, as you said, best. And we have a lot of in-house as well. We have to take a break. You're listening to a special edition of Ask the CIO. I'm playing excerpts from a panel I moderated at the Advanced Technology Academic Research Center's DevOps Summit. My panel included Sarah Fodden, the Chief of the Verification Program Portfolio at the U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services in the Homeland Security Department, Dustin Lown, a senior advisor for technology and innovation at the Federal Communications Commission, and Bo Woods, the deputy director of the Cyber Statecraft Initiative at the Atlantic Council. I'm Jason Miller. You're listening to Ask the CIO on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. Welcome back. You're listening to Ask the CIO on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. I'm your host, Jason Miller. This is a special edition of Ask the CIO. Today, I'm playing excerpts from a panel I moderated at the Advanced Technology Academic Research Center's DevOps Summit. My panel included Sarah Fodden, the Chief of the Verification Program Portfolio at the U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services in the Homeland Security Department, Dustin Laun, a Senior Advisor for Technology and Innovation at the Federal Communications Commission, and Bo Woods, the Deputy Director of the Cyber Statecraft Initiative at the Atlantic Council. In this segment, we hear more questions from the audience. Bill Chang with the Department of Transportation. Sarah, you have a security background. I have two questions. You were talking about um, GovCloud versus Amazon East, and, uh -huh. and I'm curious as to where you went or where you are with your different 
applications, yeah. and then also on uh, open source, and it goes a little bit to buy it if you can, um, are you, uh, do you favor sort of buying a managed code base in open source, or are you out there on the edge just picking up stuff off of the... Uh, is that on the edge? Yeah. I mean, I think that mentality isn't true, though. That's not on the edge. That's the way of the future, right? So to me, it's, well, I guess the edge of the future. Is that what you're saying? There's <laughs> the edge of government. So okay, maybe. Maybe. maybe you're looking at it from a, what's happening at Netflix. And I'll just I am looking at it, yes. What, maybe the majority of people versus... Oh, Amazon government. East versus GovCloud. Okay, so when we did the assessment, that was numerous, several years ago, about, I guess, three and a half years ago or so. And I haven't assessed it recently. I know they're making a lot of improvements on GovCloud and they're moving. They're going to open one over on the East Coast as well. But the assessment really kind of told me that there weren't a ton of additional security benefits. Like it was really small, like tiny. Like it was literally the difference between certified or actually the FIPS 140-2. It was either FIPS 140, both were FIPS 140-2, but one was certified and one wasn't. And the certification process for that is really complex and long and Services tedious. And right, well, that's what I was about to say. But the downside of going to GovCloud was, well, A, it was way more expensive. And so financially, that security would have had to greatly outweigh that extra cost, right? And then there was like that distance thing, right? Because it was all the on the West Coast and we're on the East Coast. So there was, a, there was a downside there as well. And then the third thing was what Dustin just said, which is the services. There were so many less services that we could utilize in AWS, and it always goes there last, right? It goes to Amazon East and West first, and then later, like a year later, <laughs> it'll hit GovCloud, right? And so for us, we wanted to capitalize on all those services right away when they came out. You know, we wanted to do cool stuff when it was available. We didn't want to wait around. And we, you know, had such an, a really good, I would I think, a good security framework and, you know, um, vision and strategy that we implemented within AWS that, you know, we had compensating controls for anything that was, you know, maybe a little less secure. It wasn't like massive though. It was like such a small, minimal thing in comparison that it didn't really make sense. More marketing. For us. GovCloud. You know, I know a lot of people want to feel secure, but like the reality is even if you go to GovCloud, you should still have a security strategy. You're really just purchasing an, a more automated data center that you can spin things up as you want to. That's all you're doing. You're, you think of it as the same exact thing as a data center, which you would have to implement all of these security controls in order to feel that the data center is properly secured. It's exactly the same as that. You wouldn't just go to the data center and stand up your servers and not do anything with security, right? You would add all these security controls around it to, to feel like your data center is secured. Same thing with Amazon. Add all of your security architecture, and then you can feel like your data center is secured. You can automate execution, you can't automate strategy. That is true. You cannot automate that, except in my mind. It feels automated. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we have another question. Thank you. Uh, I'm Mark Roth with the Air Force Lifecycle Management Center. Um, one of the things we do, uh, I think pretty common in the DOD, is you know we have a scope for a contract. We say, okay, you go build some software for and we have different contracts with different scope for managing the operations, for you know the infrastructure and the networks and all that stuff. So getting back to actually the title of the summit, DevOps, how do we, how do you guys recommend merging those two together? You know, I'm, I'm thinking even 
well, let me see, when I put a contract out for a software, I'm gonna make them supply me one of their guys to be on my operations team. But I don't have any other better ideas for maybe how to actually get that together so a DevOps thing really can be successful. That, that was my point about empowering yourself at the agency level and understanding your approach to DevOps and pushing that down. And then that's kind of mandated across the multiple contracts. And the, way, the reason why I say that is like, we just had somebody take over the O&M of our platform pushing, right? They brought their own methodologies. Now they're kind of trying to collaborate with the agency to get, get where you need to go, but it's still their methodology. And they're bound by any mess ups. So they're naturally gonna be slower to market than if you applied your own philosophies to that. Um, I don't know if you have in-house expertise to do it or not, but that's that's where I would start to then then build that into your contract process. But were so, you, that's mine. Were, wait a minute, were you having trouble hearing him? What I was saying, just just high level, is if you as the agency have already thought about your DevOps strategy, how you want to operate, how fast you want to move things, all these kind of things, and then you embed those in the contracts, it shouldn't matter who's doing what, they're applying your methodology. If you're asking the contract staff to come in and you put all these rules and you know risks, they're gonna put their own methodology to protect themselves and that's gonna slow you down. And that's what I've seen time and time again and so that's why I try to coach the agency to empower themselves. So I think that's a really good question actually because it was something that like initially at the very beginning I sort of like struggled with a tiny bit and then I realized what approach we were gonna actually use, which is that if you build it, you own it, and then if that has to be recompeted, then that next team is still building it and owning it. And so DevOpsSec is one contract of team of people that will do these things that is very generic wording, meaning they will own, operate, and code it, and custom, you know, change it as we ask them to change it, right? And I want them to own it so that they build it in a way where it doesn't break on the weekends or at night. And so as long as they're owning it, then they have to build it that way. The well, competition needs to step, to step up. up. Yes. That's the problem here. Like, yeah. Your number of resources that are stepping up to the stacks that you're, that are, that are happening today, when I say stacks, all, all, the, all the, if you're gonna go from custom dev, whatever, and put DevOps, <laughs> the, the contract staffs aren't keeping up with where you're at in the marketplace out there. And so you need to get that competition going or else you're gonna be beholden to millions about. and millions of dollars of, of just wasteful, just mm -hmm. people sitting and spinning. And, this and is that's a, what you have today anyways. This is a huge problem, right? You so have you, that today. You have people that are not being able to live up to even their own potentials. Sorry, I cut no, you no, off. Yeah, yeah. But that's what you have. You, you know, these organizations are not allowing these contractors to be able to innovate themselves on the teams as a part of the teams, as a part of the, you know, federal and contractors together. Let's innovate together because of the way these contract structures have been historically. And so changing that and allowing the teams to really be infused with the government together and together we are strategizing, together we're coming up with solutions that work, together we're, you know, we're coming up with different ideas and then choosing the best one, together we're working on it, together we're experimenting and we're not afraid to fail and it's okay if that didn't work out, now we're gonna try something different. You know, that's allowing these, these contractors, in addition to the feds, to come up to speed with the latest technologies and the latest you know, innovations and things like that. As opposed to, here's my big contract and you just run it and I'm not gonna think about it, except every time it breaks down, you're calling me. Uh, and okay. innovations are not built in to ensure that that doesn't happen. So I was wondering if uh, a lot of the stacks that are used um, 
the modern stacks, uh -huh. reach out to the internet to pull down this or that or this other thing. And for secure air gap networks um, that are not connected out there, have you guys had to address any of the challenges of applying DevOps processes to those when you can't reach out and get the last latest Ruby gem or whatever? Air gap networks are just high latency. Yeah. So you can still move things across them. It might not be as quick as you mm -hmm. want. Um, but you can put processes in place to do that, and maybe there's not as much automation because you know you could get like a little robot that would carry a USB drive or something. <laughs> Might be fun. Not a um, USB drive. <laughs> but uh, some of the same processes and, and mentality applies. Uh, but I agree, you know, for the air gap networks, you don't want to introduce arbitrary connection just to be able to be able to to update because that opens up attack surface. Um, but if you can do it more quickly, you know, by, um, by keeping that air gap, you, you keep out more bad guys who would be able to do things, so you don't have to, in theory, update quite as quickly, but you can still have a, maybe not daily, but, but every so often, uh, do all those updates. You can also build in a DevOps environment or in a development environment that is not air gapped, and then deploy to the, deploy to the air gapped environment by having, you know, a secure link between the two. Fernando from the uh, patent office uh, for Sarah. So during your uh, journey, right, from Agile and DevOps and so on, did you find like a, you know, a mismatch between like, a, you know, the federal employees and, you know, do you guys need to create new positions, right, really restructure the organization so that you could handle, right, all this new technology? And where do you draw the line, right? So what positions are basically, you know, staffed by feds and what positions are staffed by contractors? On the verification teams, I have about 20 federal staff and around 150 or plus contractor staff that support me directly. My federal staff, I did have to sort of infuse them with some energy, but they all were perfectly capable of learning, you know, and if they didn't want to learn it, they left. And then I brought on a lot of engineers, which were not previously on the federal teams. So I think it's very important that you have engineering and you know, technical development oversight for the contractors so that we can ensure that what they're building actually makes sense and it you know, works. That's all the time we have for today. You've been listening to a special edition of Ask the CIO. I've been playing excerpts from a panel I moderated at the Advanced Technology Academic Research Center's DevOps Summit. My panel included Sarah Fodden, the Chief of the Verification Program Portfolio at the U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services at the Homeland Security Department, Dustin Laun, a Senior Advisor for Technology and Innovation at the Federal Communications Commission, and Bo Woods, the Deputy Director of the Cyber Statecraft Initiative at the Atlantic Council. You can listen to the entire program anytime on federalnewsradio.com and find more episodes of Ask the CIO by subscribing to the show on Podcast One or iTunes. 